You're listening to All The Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. Like a lot of people, I'm feeling pretty anxious about climate change. Whenever I think about the future, the first thing I think about is how it will be affected by the climate. I can't think about what I'm going to do for work, where I'm going to live, or whether or not I'm going to have children without first thinking about the fact that the world is burning. It just sucks that there are people in power who can actually do something about it all, and they won't. And it sucks that they've already done all of the things I want to do. They've had successful careers and beautiful families, and they're going to die before it all falls to shit. I just feel pretty helpless, and I don't know what to do. With a problem this big, it's hard to see a way forward. So this week, we're bringing you stories from people who have a clear idea of what needs to be done. Starting with the people it will affect the most. Young people. The night before the climate strike, I get a text from one of the organisers. He says I can tag along with him for the day. When I meet him, there's only a handful of high school students here helping to set up. In a few hours, this park will be packed with 80,000 protesters. Ambrose woke up at 5 o'clock this morning to do his first TV appearance. And the first thing this morning was the... The first thing this morning, I came here and did the Today Show. So that was at, like, 7 or something like that. And what's your name? And uh, My name's Ambrose Hayes. Um, I go to a school in the middle of the city. They don't really like me mentioning the name. I noticed a lot of you are wearing school uniform. What yes. is that? Um, because the school, it symbolises the West School students and the way still going to school obviously and the the strike is so important because this is a day in history that can affect our futures and it'll get our politicians to hopefully finally listen to us about the climate crisis. How old are you? I'm 14. (laughs) (laughs) Part of me is like I mean you you obviously get this a lot they're like people are so inspired like when I was 14 I wasn't doing things like this yeah which is my immediate reaction as well but I also there's part of me that, that feels a bit saddened that you feel at this age that you have this responsibility that yeah. this is something that that you feel like as a 14 year old you're not satisfied with yeah. what the people in we power are doing don't we don't want to have to strike we feel as though we don't really have a choice uh the government is not acting we've people argue that we should just protest on the weekend we've literally done protests for years on the weekend and they haven't made a difference and as soon as we take a few days off school everyone takes notice The school strike organisers get treated like celebrities. They have wranglers chasing them around, scheduling their media appearances. I follow Ambrose as he does interviews for Greenpeace, the ABC, Vogue and the UN. The message they're pushing and the goal of today is a call for the government to fulfil their three demands. Which is one, no new fossil fuel power, including the Udani Carmichael mine. Uh, The second one is 100% renewable energy generation and exports by 2030. And the third one is to fund a just transition and to create new jobs for workers in the fossil fuel industry and to help the communities affected by it. That third demand is important. It's there to address the division between climate activists and workers in the fossil fuel industry. And it's the reason that one of the speakers today is from the Maritime Union of Australia. I want everyone here to join me in a chant. Climate justice, workers' rights, one struggle, one fight. Climate justice, workers' rights, one struggle, one fight. Um, yeah, a lot of people who know me know I'm pretty, pretty chill and um, most of the time quite mellow, but if I sort of care about something enough, I'll make sure I bring 
as much as I can to whatever, you know, whatever's needed to, to convey that message. Uh, my name's Tommy John Herbert. Uh, I'm a wharfie down at Port Botany uh, and also an ex-fossil fuel worker and a proud environmental activist. The Liberals and Conservative media, they want to paint this movement as anti-jobs, but you've proved them wrong by putting a just transition as a core demand. They want to, they want to pit workers against the climate movement because they know if we're united, we can, we're more powerful than them. Let's fight for it. I think, yeah, if you're, if you're really serious about changing those industries, you've got to involve those workers in that industry. You have to have a little bit of empathy for, for these workers. Like, if you go at them and tell them to stop what they're doing, people just naturally will just get defensive and fight against anyone who's who's trying to trying to shut down their livelihood. So I think it's just more about how do we can we create another industry with similar conditions that those workers can move over to. And I think that seemed to be an argument that a lot of people were jumping on board with. One struggle, one fight. After the speeches, I follow Ambrose to the front of the march. Because the main protest is coming this way and you'll get crushed and you'll get trampled. Time to get to the front of her. It's just the police have been a pain. We make it to the front. We see a man charging into the crowd. Seems someone just trying to rile up the crowd and maybe cause violence, who knows, but the police are just trying to tackle him down, just running into buildings and trying to tackle him. After the school strike, I went looking for an alternative viewpoint to the protesters. Not because I think this is an issue that has two legitimate sides, it isn't, but because it affects all of us, even those of us who think that it doesn't. I imagine speaking to someone like the man who rushed at the school strikers, only, you know, with better emotional regulation. What I wasn't expecting to find was a scientist who believes that Australia shouldn't declare a climate emergency. If you want to pick up the dismissives, the cautious, the uncertain, climate emergency isn't going to do that. It's going to be seen as something of a stunt. This is David Holmes, director of the Climate Change Communication Research Hub. So first of all, let me be clear. Do I think there is a climate emergency? Yes, I do. Absolutely. Uh, Do I think it's a good communication strategy to communicate that to the broader Australian population? Well, not at the moment and certainly not at a national level. The reason being is that climate change is still so politicised in Australia and 
So it, it creates quite a lot of division. David studies how to effectively communicate about climate change. His concern is that for Australians who are climate skeptics or who just aren't that alarmed about climate change yet, protests don't work. He believes that in order to reach those groups, we need other kinds of messaging. So the problem is there's not really one message that works with every group. So, so it's not so much that it's about criticising climate emergency or any, or any other message. It's rather that there is no single message that really uh, works at the moment. So what you're seeing with the protests uh, and some of the protest brands like Extinction Rebellion is this frustration that, well, we've got to do something because the politicians aren't doing anything. And, and from that point of view, they're very well-intentioned. But because most of the population, whilst they're concerned about climate change, they still see it as distant in space and time, you know, the message of protest really doesn't resonate just yet. In terms of Extinction Rebellion polarizing people a certain way, um, we think that the disruption that we cause blocking a road is really super minor compared to the disruption that uh, the climate emergency will actually cause overall. Additionally, movements like Black Lives Matter in the US have taken this kind of disruption previously, and it's been shown that over time, over a sustained campaign of multiple years, that support for the cause that Black Lives Matter was uh, behind did increase over time. My name is David Kahn, um, and I'm an organizer and member of Extinction Rebellion. Extinction Rebellion uses a strategy called nonviolent direct action. Essentially, they create chaos, peaceful chaos, to communicate the need for urgent action. So we aim for disruption. So it can be economic disruption, it can be societal disruption, it can be media disruption. So we aim to disrupt narratives, disrupt people's thoughts, and kind of shake the complacency that exists around, you know, that it's okay what's going on, that not dealing with climate change is fine, that things are going to be okay. We aim to shake that up. Shortly after the school climate strike, members of Extinction Rebellion marched on Railway Square in Sydney as part of an international protest. They lay down on the street, holding up traffic, until the police told them to move on. Protesters who refused were arrested. I was arrested, yep. They put everybody in wrist locks, as far as I could tell. So we had two officers that dragged me, put me in the wrist lock, and then dragged me off by my armpits. Usually they are meant to use uh, four officers to actually pick you up if you're lying down or you're floppy, but they only had two, so they dragged me. There's video footage of David being dragged away by his armpits. His body is totally limp, his face expressionless. I want it to be calm. It can be a potentially traumatic experience, police force being used against you. Um, you know, I didn't want to give the police a reaction necessarily. I wanted to maintain composure for myself. So I tried, you know, to be relaxed, to be calm as well, not escalate the situation either. Because, you know, there's people going to be taking photos of you. We're very focused on making these indelible images and iconic images too. Our theory of change, um, as you might call it, would be that there might be inconvenience from the disruption to people on the day, but that ultimately over time people will side with the climate activists taking the moral and ethical stance that we need to take climate action um, because they will see that we're in the right. But for the moment at least, 
Many people don't view the issue with the same urgency as Extinction Rebellion does. They're not connecting with the message. They're just having their commute interrupted. Where climate change is politicised, advocacy doesn't really work, which is another aspect of why you know, some of the more spectacular kinds of protests don't really work because people just get pigeonholed. Well, of course they would do that because, you know, they're from here or they're that group. Uh, Whereas what you want is trusted sources who aren't really seen to have any particular ideological view they're trying to push. They're just simply showing the facts. At the Climate Communication Hub, David and his team are researching who are the most trusted sources on climate science. It turns out that the ideal climate communicators are weather presenters. Not only are they trusted, but unlike farmers and firefighters and and even scientists, they're also really skilled communicators who have access to a large audience. So uh, with our program, we broker the science, we get the facts represented in an easy-to-understand visual way, and the weather presenters present it. Back in 1970, when disco still ruled the airwaves, Ballarat's average daytime temperature in winter was around 10.6 degrees. Now we fast-forward to 2019. We'll start July, but the trend is actually for increasing average July observations, And this is our hottest Halloween on record. They surveyed viewers before the TV segments appeared, and then again 12 months later. And we look at whether there's been a learning effect and whether that learning effect has also had an impact on their concern about climate change as well as their behavioural response, whether they're changing their behaviour as a result. I kind of suspected that David Kahn, as an advocate for mass civil disobedience, would be dismissive of the weather presenter study that he would view it as being not radical enough. But he was all for it. Of course. I mean, like, everyone should be doing anything they can do. You know, we've got one tactic, and if people have different tactics that work on different people, I think we're all in support of that. You know, we don't expect to do this alone, and we're not so confident to say that this strategy is going to work with 100% certainty, right? I mean, that would be, I think, arrogant to say that anything works with 100% certainty. So, you know, some tactics will sound good and then they won't work and some tactics will sound okay this you know it doesn't sound good but then maybe it works really well right extinction rebellion believes that we need drastic climate action now and as a person i believe that too but not everyone is gonna you know think that's the best message and that message will not necessarily work for everyone right you know this is a total emergency and i think if people are willing to tackle it in different ways that work for different people in conveying the message of the climate emergency, that sounds like a totally valuable contribution. Ryan Pemberton produced that story. Zasha Rosen was the supervising producer. You're listening to All the Best. I'm Maddie McQueen. All the Best is about training emerging Australian storytellers in the art of audio. If you'd like to be a part of the show, you can start by pitching to us at allthebestradio.com. 
We'll pair you with one of our supervising producers to help make your story. Sometimes trying to reduce our individual impact can feel like a waste of time. With the Adani Carmichael mine estimated to generate 4.7 billion tonnes of greenhouse gas emissions, what's the point in using a bamboo toothbrush? But the changes we make ourselves can have a ripple effect on the people around us. That's what Michael Mobbs discovered when he took his family home off-grid 23 years ago. My name is Michael Mobbs. It's a tough thing for me to say to myself and tough for anyone to hear. I was called a kook. I was called a betrayer. I was also swamped by people saying thank you so much. It's catapulted me into a different emotional space where I've had to find reserves deep in me to keep me going. But it has just made me clearer. So welcome to my house. This is your time. Don't ask, can I ask? The answer is you can. So for the next 50 minutes, it's yours. Sustainability expert and coach Michael Mobbs has shared his home with almost 30,000 strangers, members of the public who've passed through these doors, eager to learn what living off-grid looks like in the city. You and I are speaking in a dirty inner-city suburb about half an hour's walk from the Opera House and 10 minutes from Rivers of Steel, of some of Australia's busiest roads. Michael took his family home off-grid in 1996. It was more or less... Um, a childish reaction to being told I couldn't do something. And engineers and um, quote-unquote experts were saying you couldn't drink rainwater, you couldn't recycle sewage. So I um, did the house to show that you could. And it changed my life. Now known as the off-grid guy, the house has become a part of his identity. A small model of it sits in Sydney's Powerhouse Museum. I used to be a lawyer. <laughs> and this helped me to rejoin the human race. So um, you can see the house is for sale. I'm actually going to look at buying a place down south. So why is he letting it go? I was born in 1950. I'm 69 in Orange in New South Wales. I was brought home through the 1950 flood to a farm that my parents had on the river flat country on the Lachlan River. I learnt there, growing up on the farm, that the weather always has the last say. We are flooded, we are droughts, rat and mice plagues, everything. So I learnt that the money we earned depended on the weather. Fell off horses dozens of times, um, was bitten by a brown snake. I pulled a calf out of a struggling cow at three o'clock in the morning when I was about, I know, nine. It was a, everybody was all, all, all in. I think I got lots of gifts. I was diagnosed with a bone disease and in those days the cure was to the leg that had the disease into an iron caliper. So I clanked around like some Frankenstein. And being different in a small country school, 
um, meant that I was completely picked on. And I learnt the gift of being different. I was the eldest child, male, and it was assumed I would go on the farm. And so I went to a boarding school for farmer's sons. And um, I loved it so much I didn't want to come home. What I didn't love was agriculture. I was the first child to fail agriculture in the school. It was my instinctive way of saying no to my father. After boarding school, Michael decided to study law. I went to work for the so-called top end of town and worked for some of Australia's biggest polluters. We used to call our legal department the Department of Digging. Then I left and set up my own law firm and proceeded to sue them all. So in 93-94, I was appointed to inquire into the, how to manage Sydney's water and sewage and stormwater future by the New South Wales Parliament. I'm a slow learner. I saw that the more laws made to protect the environment, the worse the environment got. So eventually I decided law is not an answer. So I was sort of thrown off the illusion of the law guiding me. and I, I, I follow what my heart and my intellect tell me. And 23 years ago, they were telling him to renovate the family home. We disconnected the house from town water and town sewer and put in solar panels, which I can tell you in 1996 was almost enough to have you committed to an insane asylum. Water from this roof is diverted under the house here to a um, 10,000 litre concrete tank at the back. The other thing that's different, if you look up and compare uh, this house to either side and the others, there's no black line coming in from the electricity grid. In 2015, the house was disconnected from electricity and batteries were put in. So let's have a look at the water, the sewage and the energy systems out the back. Uh, we're going into our, our back deck that faces the sun. Some residents, at least, seem blissfully unaware of change on the horizon. Look at me, I'm nagged by these little mini dinosaurs. No, you've been fed. I discovered that the growing production, transport and waste of food is the third greatest use of water and energy resources and polluter. Just one commercially produced egg, he tells me, uses a whopping 80 litres of water. The chook doesn't drink 80 litres, but it's embodied in the, in, um, the water to grow the grain to feed the chooks. Michael feeds his chickens mostly on kitchen scraps and weeds picked from street corners. So I got these chooks and I started gardening up the street. The one most important thing you can do as an individual, no matter who you are or where you are, is to buy and grow local food. You'll get healthier food and you'll save more energy and water than if you had solar systems, recycle water systems. And you can believe Michael's done the math. The bubbing noise you can hear below is air being pumped in uh, 60 litres a minute, 24-7, to aerate the sewage. There's no such thing as uh, waste, just a failure of imagination. Nature wastes nothing. And that little metal thing over there is an ultraviolet light and it sterilises or kills any viruses or pathogens. Millions of people in the city have flushed the toilet this morning thinking they're doing a good thing, but it goes into the water the whales drink, and I don't respect that. 
I ask whether having a sewage tank in their garden might alarm some people. So answer me honestly, do I smell or do you smell the smell of sewage that you're standing above? It's true. There's a faint earthy scent when the lid is off. Nothing unusual or unpleasant. We walk back towards the house. One more thing to show you. He holds his hand next to a small wooden box. An insect lands on it. Smaller than a mosquito. They're called stingless bees, and I've got them to increase the productivity of everything, not just the fruit trees, but everything. About 60 to 80% of our food depends on bees. So when the bees go, they're taking us with them. When I was born, there were 2 billion people. Now there's 7 billion people. 3 billion birds have died. 200 species go extinct every day. Uh, The level of destruction is earthwide. We have no chance of stopping the collapse of our cultures across Earth. In terms of this house... It's changed building regulations and it's given people hope. I've recently said I'm going to sell it because I think that in the next three to five years our cultures will fall down, the seasons will disappear and there'll be no food and cities will be dangerous places to live in. It's a tough thing for me to say to myself and tough for anyone to hear. I was called a kook. I was called a betrayer. I was also swamped by people saying thank you so much for saying what we know, what we've been thinking about for years, thank you. I'm just speaking my truth. I hope I'm wrong. Some have said that in in doing this I'm actually having a a greater impact potentially than councils and uh, people declaring a climate emergency. I only put my garbage out once a month. I've got the smallest bin I can get. I wanted to put no garbage out and therefore not pay for it, but the council won't stop charging me a garbage fee. There's no financial reward or incentive for people who use less or no garbage. I call bullshit on councils and governments that declare um, emergencies over the climate but don't change things. Though some have interpreted selling his house as a sign he's giving up, Michael hasn't stopped battling for change. My goal is to go to market this side of Christmas with a sustainable house, including water, sewage and energy, and only recycled timber and steel. As I leave the building that's been Michael's home for over 40 years, that showed sustainability sceptics the impossible could be done, it feels like an era is ending. People know that things are not right. People also know that they can't rely on governments. But they have to get the kids to school. They have to have a relationship. They have to pay the bills. I live with the truth every day. I'm not hanging my head and going around with tears running in my eyes. It's focused my mind and I just give thanks. 
so much more easily for the things that Earth gives us. It's the best time of my life. That story was produced by Alice Allen. Ryan Pemberton was the supervising producer. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. All the Best is made at FBI Radio in Sydney in association with SIN and 3RRR in Melbourne. Our executive producer is Ryan Pemberton. Jordan Fennell is our Victorian State Coordinator. The All the Best Community Coordinators are Chloe Gillespie and Danny Stewart. Our SIN Community Coordinator is Lee Robinson. Matilda Fay is our social media producer, and I'm your host, Maddie McQueen. Shining Bird composed our theme music, and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network, and we're made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at cbf.org.au. This is our last episode for the year. We'll be playing you some of our favourite stories over the summer, and we'll be back with new episodes in 2020. The Climactic Collective. This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H E R E media.studio.